0: Hi, I'm Heather Mulder, and I'm Janice Scrino and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts,
1: and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello, and
0: welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast.
1: Today, our conversation will be with Mary Frances O'Connor, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona and author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. And we're going to be discussing the grieving brain. You know, Janice, I don't think there's a, a person in the world who hasn't experienced some type of grief throughout their life. And it's such a unique and painful experience to go through. It feels like such a heart journey. And what I love about this book is it helps you understand all of these really complicated feelings that you're having and well, when we talk to our caregivers of, of people living with dementia, a lot of times we talk to them about the experience of ambiguous loss and anticipatory loss um, and, and grief. All of these are common experiences for our caregivers. And, you know, as I, I reflect on my own experience, it's hard to believe, but um, prior to moving to Arizona, I had lost my life partner and we are now approaching 10 years um, since I lost him. And I reflect back on that first year and just how tragic and difficult that time was to process this monumental loss in my life. And here I am 10 years later, so much have changed, but it can take the smallest little thing to trigger that experience of grief. It's just always present with you. And so I'm so grateful for the book, The Grieving Brain, and I'm really excited to learn more from Mary Francis today about what is actually happening behind the grieving process.
0: I agree, Heather, and I, I can only imagine what it's like to be coming up on 10 years and, and how life has changed, but that things can still catch you off guard. And it, it makes me think, like like you said, of of my own grief in my life. And I think of most recently losing my grandmother um, who was diagnosed with dementia. And they think it was probably Alzheimer's disease uh, and vascular dementia. But I remember grieving while she was still living. I remember grieving about the impact that it was having on my family. I remember grieving about how it was impacting her, and I remember grieving about how it was impacting me, and then I remember grieving after she passed, and just those moments of, hey, I wish I could call grandma and get that recipe, or whatever it might be, and it just catches you off guard, so... I am so glad that we have Mary Frances today. I think this conversation is going to be so important for
1: our caregivers. Welcome, Mary Frances. Thank you for joining our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's such an important conversation. Before we learn more about the grieving brain, can we learn a little bit more about you? Tell us about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community. Well, I really connected with the dementia community through caregivers,
2: honestly, because they were coping with grief and loss. And grief and loss has been a long time scientific curiosity for me, thinking about how does the brain understand that we have this one and only that we love? How does our little gray computer encode all of that? But there's, A more personal reason as well. Uh, When I was in the eighth grade, my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. So I didn't know it at the time, but she was only supposed to live through the year. And her oncologist described her as his first miracle. She lived another 13 years. But grief definitely came to our house. Yeah. And what that meant was when I was 26 and she died, I was already in graduate school. And, you know, it just made me comfortable with people who were grieving. So I could think about deeply understanding what they were saying about their experience what they were thinking and feeling and doing and then trying to match that up with the neuroimaging scans that I was um taking with them and sort of seeing how the brain and the psychology were all sort of interconnected
1: what a fascinating story thank you for sharing that with us i'm really curious to learn more specifically what is grief and Why does it hurt so much? I mean, you can feel physical pain from grief. Well, I think of grief as just the natural response when
2: something very important or someone very important to us is taken away, is gone. And so that often happens through death, but it can happen in other ways as well that we'll talk about. And I think people don't necessarily realize that grief is a physiological response as well as a psychological response. Those are, of course, completely interconnected. But the description of grief being painful is so common and even universal across the world that there is actually evidence from research studies that that's not just a metaphor So we know that when you bond with a loved one, you can't really talk about grief without talking about love. And so when you've bonded with your one and only, your spouse or your baby or whoever, that it sets up your brain to release opioids when you're with them. So that's the internal release of these good feeling chemicals, opioids, and what that means is that then if you're separated for the from them we actually see a decrease in opioids well the other reason that we know opioids is because that's what we give people for pain relief right if you've had surgery a doctor will often prescribe opiates for you and so that painful experience that we're having even though people can't necessarily say which part of the body it's painful that painful experience could be in part because you have less opioids in your system that are naturally created because you're
0: not with that person with whom you're bonded. That is absolutely fascinating. And, I think many of us can relate to that because if we are around a cute baby, I mean, Mm -hmm. who can't help feeling happy inside? And that's so interesting that the research is finding that. And you mentioned brain scans and evidence. How do you measure grief in a scientific way? We really struggled with how to do this
2: when we published the first neuroimaging study of grief that was done here at the University of Arizona in 2003. And I realized that if you were going to evoke grief in this neuroimaging scanner, that's a pretty sterile medical environment. We wanted to do that as naturally as possible. And so when bereaved participants courageously agree to participate in our research studies, I ask them to bring with them a photograph of the person who's died, much like you might look through photo albums if you were explaining, you know, your grandmother to someone who had never met them after she died. And we take those photographs and scan them into a computer so that while the participant is lying in the neuroimaging scanner, we can show them those photographs on goggles. And that means that while they're reacting to looking at this person who they love, who's died, and as they're having all that neural activity during that wave of grief, that we can record where that activity is happening in the brain and then compare that, for example, to them looking at a photo of a stranger, where they're still looking at a human being, but they're not having a wave of grief associated with it. So by comparing what it is to just look at a person and what it is to look at this one and only who's deceased, by looking at the difference in brain activity, it tells us the brain regions and connections that are uh, associated with grief.
1: You've talked about how love and grief are so intertwined with each other And encoding a bond is so an important part of that as well. Why does encoding a bond with our loved one mean that we're feeling grief?
2: Well, some of this research actually comes from animal neuroscience. So neuroscientists study these little tiny rodents called voles. And voles are amazing because they pair bond for life. Once they have selected a mate, they prefer to spend time with that vole than any other vole. And what we know from the research, research, say, done by Zoe Donaldson at the University of Colorado Boulder, is that when that bond happens, there are epigenetic changes that happen in the brain. That is to say, the way that the proteins in your brain are folded around your genes changes Because I love you and you love me. Such a remarkable thing. But what that means is it's a very enduring change. So it comes along with this belief. I'll always be there for you and you'll always be there for me. And that enduring attachment motivates us to come back together again. So you couldn't go off to work in the morning or send your children off to school in the morning if you didn't have some deep belief that you would all do everything in your power to come back together again at the end of the day. And so it's that change, that encoding in our brain that motivates us, that
0: has us yearn for our loved one when they're gone. So that is remarkable. And it is like truly losing a part of yourself when you lose someone that you love so much.
2: Yes, we think of it, you know, it is, I think, how the brain encodes it. It's no longer you and me, but the brain encodes a we. And you can think of this even in the words that we say, right? I describe myself as a daughter, but the word daughter it implies two people in the world, doesn't it? Right. I'm using it to describe myself, but it's actually about two people. The word spouse is the same way, or the word best friend, they all imply two people. And again, I think that's not a metaphor. I think that's how our brain encodes relationships.
1: In Dementia Untangled, we really try to reach caregivers of people with dementia. And a lot of times we talk about the experience of ambiguous loss and anticipatory grief or anticipatory loss. Can you help us understand the differences and the similarities between those experiences? I have done some research with caregivers and it's such
2: a difficult experience and some of the reason that it's difficult i think is related to the experience of ambiguous loss and part of partly that just feels very confusing so ambiguous loss means on the one hand your loved one is still there you're caring for them every day but on the other hand they're not the person that they were before they're not the same part of we that they were when you met and fell in love or even when you had kids together or you retired together. So the bond that you have with this person is a bond also with this internal representation of your loved one. This is why you can sort of Think about, you know, you're at the grocery store and you think, oh, well, what what would my husband want for dinner? You can sort of consult the internal model that you have and know what he's going to like, right? You're talking to that internal representation of him. Well... When someone has dementia, so much of their personality changes, so much of the way they interact with us changes, and it means that they're not the same person anymore. And so we feel ambiguous loss because, on the one hand, there is loss for that relationship. And on the other hand, it can't really be loss, it's ambiguous because they're still alive. And so it doesn't get treated as though it is a kind of loss anticipatory loss, on the other hand, or anticipatory grief, I think is maybe the more common term, is that we also know when a loved one has a diagnosis of dementia, that they're not going to recover from it. It's not like getting a cancer diagnosis where there's, you know, often a good chance that the person will survive after treatment. And so we know that this person's life is limited now. And it is natural as human beings to try and imagine the future. We anticipate what it will be like to have grief when we're in the world and our loved one no longer is. And so that anticipatory grief, experiencing what we will feel in the future, fearing what we will feel in the future is also a part of being a caregiver. So kind of thinking about those as distinct can help us to sort through our feelings, to label what it is that we might be experiencing and to know that it's very common among other caregivers as well, which hopefully gives us a little bit of compassion for ourselves that we're pretty normal and that this is an impossible situation
0: that we're dealing with. Absolutely. And I wonder for people what happens when someone just tries to avoid the process of grieving and either they just have a natural tendency to, to, to be in denial, or they're just trying to move forward, or they actually just don't want to deal with it.
2: Well, we forget that grieving is really stressful. Caregiving is stressful. Grieving is stressful. The grief during caregiving is really stressful. And so hopefully we develop a lot of different skills, a lot of different strategies to deal with those feelings. And so there's no one right way to deal with grief. There's no one right way to try and cope with it. And what we see is that what really matters is whether the way we're coping is working for us in the short term and the long term. So let's say we're talking about a person and, really denial and avoidance in a particular situation might be totally appropriate, right? Like I might go to my granddaughter's soccer game and think, you know what, for this 45 minutes, I am going to pretend nothing has happened. I'm going to pretend that I am not having any negative feelings. I am just going to cheer for my granddaughter and focus entirely on this. And that's really appropriate in that moment, right? It gives our body a break from the stressful grief experience. We might have positive feelings, which is so wonderful for us. And it helps us to connect with our granddaughter. But you can imagine that if that is always your strategy, if that's the only tool in your toolkit, that every time you feel grief, you think, you know what, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening and, and focus on whatever I'm doing right now that in the long term, it may not really help us to understand what life is like now, now that we are a person who has grief. But the amazing thing about the brain is it can help us if we don't avoid the painful situation. We can actually learn how to cope with it. So we may come to understand that waves of grief, while they come, they also go again. They really are like waves. And so while it feels unbearable initially, eventually a wave of grief may feel more familiar so that you feel it and it's awful, but you also eventually know and it will go again. Or you learn ways to comfort yourself, to reach out for comfort when you're feeling a wave of grief. These are other strategies that if you just keep avoiding the feeling of grief, you're not really likely to develop.
1: Mary Francis, I find that so relatable, this analogy of a wave and kind of even becoming more comfortable and it even being anticipated or even expected at certain times. I think a lot of people, when we think of grief, we move to the Kubler-Ross model, the five stages of grief. And in your book, you talk about this and relate it to our society's appetite for the hero's journey. And you say these five stages can make people feel like failures because they haven't overcome the grief or achieved some enlightened state. Can you talk to us more about that?
2: Well, the five stages of grief is really often the only thing that people seem to know about grief. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was an amazing psychiatrist at a time when there were not a lot of women in psychiatry. She had this revolutionary idea that you could talk to someone who was grieving and ask them how they were feeling. And then she wrote about it in a book she published in 1969. And she did what all good scientists do when they're initially uh, investigating a phenomena. She described it. So she described what people were telling her about experiencing denial and feeling depression and anger and feeling acceptance. But the stages came to be used as not just a description of grieving, but of a prescription for grieving, as though you were to follow these stages in this order Uh, not skip any stages, and then you would be released at the end. And this really does sound like what we think of as the hero's journey, right? From, you know, everything from Homer and the Iliad to sort of, you know, if you think of stranger things right and and the and the character 11 who travels through these you know gauntlets they have to get through these these difficult stages they have to get through and then at the end there's this reward that they return this wiser better person uh to their home to the people they love well the trouble with this is not everyone experiences the stages in this order. Sometimes you go through anger many times, even after you've been through acceptance, and sometimes you don't experience anger at all. From more recent research, we know that it isn't a set of stages like that, that in general, people experience more acceptance over time, and they experience less yearning over time, but that it goes up and down. It goes up during the holidays. It goes up at the anniversary of the death. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the process that you're in. It just means that you're more aware in those moments of the loss that you've had. And so I think it is problematic for people who are trying to hold themselves to some standard, uh, some model of how grief can work uh because it isn't necessarily reflective of everyone's experience.
0: Oh, that is so good. You know, our life just isn't a script and things don't happen on cue like we think maybe they should. So that that is such great advice. And I wonder if you can share with us and our listeners tell us a little bit about the difference between grief and depression you write about that
2: i think it isn't until fairly recently that we've made a good distinction between grief and depression although interestingly even freud wrote about this in the early 1900s so this is perhaps the easiest way i've found to describe it grief really is about the person who's died and so in depression yearning is not a characteristic of depression Yearning is a characteristic of grief. And so after my mother died, for example, she and I had had a really complicated, difficult relationship. And also I was a young adult. I was in the developmental process of separating from her. After she died, it wasn't that I yearned for her to be back, which is very common when people are experiencing intense grief and can last for a very long time for people, my experience was more like depression. And depression means that it isn't just about the person who's died, that you're having a lot of sadness or difficulty, but it's about a lot of things. You also feel guilty about not being a good enough employee, and you worry about the state of climate change, and you you know, feel, feel guilty that you should be a better mother, and you know, it's kind of contagious. Depression means that it affects kind of every part of our life and prevents us from functioning. So they really are distinct, and it can be helpful if you've had depression in the past to know that you might be at greater risk for depression even after a loved one dies, Uh, and that sometimes it can be helpful to talk with a clinician about the difference or perhaps to uh, access a resource like um, if you Google uh Columbia University and complicated grief you'll find the center for complicated grief and they make very helpful distinctions for the public and for professionals
1: i think you've made a very useful distinction just speaking of how grief really encompasses yearning which isn't necessarily a part of depression we've focused a lot of this conversation on the experience of grief and what is happening can you share some coping mechanisms for our listeners? How can they best deal with this? I think one of the things that can be problematic for people who
2: are grieving is rumination. So these are these thoughts that just keep coming back to you, that you get stuck in. And some people will recognize this uh, this label for them. I sometimes call them the would've, should've, could've. Thoughts. And so these are the infinite number of stories that we can tell ourselves. You know, if only I had gotten them to the hospital sooner, or the doctor should have known to run that other test, or if only they could have known that, you know, they shouldn't have that last drink, or the infinite number of stories we can tell ourselves. Well, the trouble with that is that if you think about it, each of those stories ends in and then my loved one would have lived. But the painful reality is that they did not live. And that if we get stuck in what our brain can generate in an infinite number of these, it's not helpful in understanding what reality is like now. It doesn't help us to be in the present moment. And the present moment is full of possibility. It's only in the present that, yes, we may experience grief and suffering, but we also experience joy and love and silliness. And if you're stuck in your head ruminating about these other things, you miss things like your grandkids playing a silly prank or the puppy loping in the park or the barista who gives you this really nice smile for no apparent reason. And so being stuck in those thoughts can make it difficult to figure out what life is like now and to really start thinking about restoring a meaningful life for yourself.
0: Mary Frances, that is so powerful. Uh, thank you so much for that. One thing I'm wondering is, as you've done your research Across the board, culturally, are there similarities, differences, and are there things we can learn from cultures who do grief well? I think it's really helpful
2: to make a distinction between the experience of grief and the expression of grief. So we know from research and from history and from literature, that the experience of grief is very universal. It's true across cultures, it's true across periods of history, it's even true probably across species. But the expression of grief looks incredibly different at different times by different people, by different cultures. So what we see on the outside doesn't necessarily mean that one person is experiencing grief and another person is not, even if the expression looks very different. I find this is helpful, especially where you may be grieving very differently from your family. I remember my sister saying to me, you know, I I feel like I'm not really grieving for our dad when he died. And I said, Caroline, you made all these arrangements for the funeral. You wrote the obituary. You're talking with all of our extended family. That was all stuff I couldn't do at that time. For her, the expression was behavior. It was doing things to honor my father's memory. That doesn't have to be the feeling in the same way. It doesn't have to be crying for it to be an expression of grief. There are things from other cultures that I think can be useful. And sometimes even looking back to our own family's culture or our own ethnic culture can be helpful because it connects us to the people that came before who managed to get through this unbearable situation. So saying particular prayers, lighting a candle, having an altar, going to a graveside, these are all things that connect us with those who've come before. And I would say that These are things we can adopt now, if
1: that's useful for us. When I think of our listeners, I know some of them will be experiencing the grieving process, but I also know some of our listeners will be seeing someone who's experiencing this, and I'm sure we can reflect on our own experiences and and hearing things that maybe were not so helpful about how we were going to move on or let it go, Um, but you reference allowing individual expressions of grief. Do you have any other recommendations on how we could support someone who's grieving? Perhaps the most important thing to know is
2: that our role as we're caring for someone who's grieving is that it is not to cheer them up. They are going to have this natural reaction and Our job instead is to be there with them, to let them borrow our hope that they won't always feel this way because often they can't see that yet. But we can see that for them and to let them know we'll be there until they have that experience, you know. It's again about flexibility. Perhaps a quick story about my dad would be useful here. He, when he was a widower, he adopted a lot of other widowers in my hometown. And he called me once and was telling me about a man that he'd been spending a lot of time with, who he said wanted to go through these photo albums of he and his deceased wife who had taken a lot of trips together. And he said, dad said, I just am not sure if I should be encouraging this, right? He seems really, really sad when we do this. And I said, dad, I think what's important is I also hear that the two of you go bowling together and you belong to Kiwanis together. And I hear about lots of other activities that you do together. That's the flexibility part. I said, I think if you can bear it, that he just needs to express how important this woman was in his life and and the things that they did together. And he told me much later that he said, you know, he stopped doing it very much, just kind of naturally. And he said, I think if you hadn't encouraged me to sit with him and let him be sad and and explain these stories to me, even when I'd heard
1: them before, that I might not have done that. And it seems like maybe it was helpful for him. This has been such an important conversation, Mary Francis. I wonder if you could give us your final thought when it comes to the grieving brain. I think knowing that our brain
2: is there trying to help us. It is trying to update our understanding of the world. It is available to shift our attention to the present moment. And it really has attachment neurobiology that is built to be flexible and can help
1: us connect with living loved ones as well. Today, our conversation has been with Mary Frances O'Connor, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arizona, and author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. We're so grateful for this conversation today and you helping us untangle the grieving brain. It's so good to be here. Thank you both.
0: Thank you so much, Mary Frances. Um, What a pleasure to have you. We've learned so much today. And uh, Heather, thank you for another great conversation. And thank you to our wonderful listeners for joining us. Hey, if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast. I'm looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or
1: wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation.
0: Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com.